you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's page 992 in your pew Bible as we are nearing the end of our uh, study of Paul's letter to a young minister in the church at Ephesus where he is pastoring. It's a, it's a book about how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And last week, uh, Dr. Bruce mentioned in verses 3 through 10, as the Apostle Paul does, that uh, Paul warns Timothy and us about false teachers who promote a corrupt form of Christianity. He's been talking about people who believe and teach false doctrines, who think godliness is a means of financial gain, people who are driven by a desire to be rich, people who, because of the love of money, he says, have, have uh, brought upon themselves ruin and destruction. So he's been warning us about them. Here, uh, he turns to Timothy and tells him what he ought to do positively. Uh, and so we want to consider this. In contrast to the false teachers, what should a faithful Christian do and why? Let me invite you to hear God's word. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. May he mold and shape us by it. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, honor yourself through this word. Be our teacher and our guide to good to our souls and by your spirit help us to receive to learn to grow and to be changed for your glory in jesus name i pray amen christians are people who have been saved to serve Uh, we uh, here are going to think about service but start with that first part a christian is somebody who is accepted The gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus. They've accepted the gift of the finished work of the Savior. Jesus, Paul has previously said in the text, chapter 1, he came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. He, chapter 2, came to be the one mediator between God and man. He brings us to God acceptably. 
And believing in him for salvation means we receive what he has achieved on our behalf. A man who was deeply troubled about his own relationship with God wrote to Martin Luther. And Luther, who himself had had plenty of seasons of of difficulty and uh, misunderstanding and struggle in his relationship with God, so he's full of compassion. He wrote to him and he wrote him back and he said, Learn to know Christ and him crucified. And learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. So uh, now here in verses 11 to 16 of this chapter, uh, as Paul makes clear, resting on Jesus for salvation is not an excuse uh, to fail to serve Jesus. It doesn't uh, now don't misunderstand. Don't serve Jesus as a way to pay for your salvation. He has paid it all. And don't serve Jesus as a way to get paid. That's what he's just been talking about. Uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And don't think like the false teachers that your godliness is a way to get rich in this world. But do serve Jesus because he paid with his own life to ransom you for God, to get you for God. He served you to make you free as his servant. And he's going to talk about that service to Timothy and what that means. He turns from the lifestyle of the false teachers to the lifestyle of the true servants of God. He says, oh man of God, live this way. So that's what we're thinking about. How do we live in light of what Jesus has done? Or why do we live that way? And so I want to highlight three things in the text. I want to point those out to you, and then we'll walk through the passage together. Uh, He speaks in verses 11 and 12 uh, a command to press on. This is where he says you need to flee, you need to pursue, you need to uh, fight, you need to take hold. So it's a command to press on. In verses 13 and 14, he, he charges him. He gives him a charge to persevere in this until Jesus returns. Uh, and then in the last place, in verse 15 and 16, he actually praises God. It's a doxology. And he says, remember that there's a king to be praised. So there's a command to press on. There's a charge to persevere. And there is a king to be praised. Now let's think about these things together. In the first place, verses 11 and 12, this command to press on. Four imperatives, four commands. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. And these are all strong verb commands. But as for you, he begins, O man of God, flee these things. It's the language of somebody who realizes there's an avalanche coming that will crush their head if they don't get out of the way. A person who knows that there's a lava flow that will burn them up or a tsunami that will swallow them whole. Run for your life away from these things, Paul says. Flee. Flee what? It's from the prior passage. Flee the false teaching. Flee the unhealthy craving for controversy. Flee from imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain. Flee from discontentment before the Lord with what he has given to you. Flee from a lack of contentment with what he has provided for you. 
flee from the desire to be rich and from the love of money because he says those things cause people to wander away from the faith. And then they pierce themselves with many pains and they plunge themselves into ruin and the destruction of hell. And he says, don't do that, but turn away from those things and run. And then pursue. In this new direction, he says, secondly, pursue. Pursue what? Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance. It's a, it's a strong word here. In some circumstances, uh, it's used uh, in, for persecute, or to persecute. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's strong. It's, it's a chase down, hunt down. Uh, seek and find. And, and, and so he's saying, you've got to do this. Now, why is he saying to pursue these particular things? Well, I think in part because they are related to the whole problem of pursuing wealth. The things listed here, if we pursue them, will provide an antidote, antidote to the love of money. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, he says, pursue righteousness and godliness. And you remember the words of our Lord Jesus when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But you do know that uh, those who love money never have enough and are never satisfied. He says, remember that godliness and pursue that. Godliness is Godwardness. It's the orientation of life in respect and reverence uh, to God. Uh, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. You're going to be oriented in one of the two directions. And if you love money, you're going to grow to despise God. Because he will never give you enough to make you happy, satisfied in this life. And you can't take it with you anyway. But it will turn your heart away. So pursue godliness. And then he says pursue faith, trusting God. This is a key to contentment, trusting our Father in heaven is good and that our Father in heaven is doing good to us, even in our circumstances, that he is providing for me. And we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so he says, pursue faith and trust in him and pursue love. Looking out for the best interests of others will keep you from loving things more than people. Or using people to acquire things for yourself at their expense. Pursue love and it will keep you from loving money. And at the end of the list you see steadfastness and gentleness. Again the impact of the false teacher's teaching with its emphasis on riches. Was likely to create a people who were so driven by their love of money. That they could be easily impatient with anybody who got in their way. And likewise, any circumstances that stood between them and their pursuit would have been met, surely, with lots of irritation and impatience. So pursue steadfastness and gentleness and perseverance. So Paul urges Timothy uh, to pursue these qualities that are diametrically opposed to all those other things. So he says, flee. He says, pursue. And he says, fight. (laughs) Wrestle. He either has in mind a soldier fighting or uh, the Olympic champions wrestling. But either way, fight the good fight of the faith, he says. We're in a battle. 
And he's not saying fight for faith. He's saying fight the good fight of the faith. And it's very likely that what he has in mind here for Timothy is that he should guard and protect the sound doctrine he has received. As verse 10 states, some had wandered away from these truths, but Timothy is not to do that. He's to hang on to them and fight for them. Fight for the faith. Fight for the content of the faith. Sometimes you'll hear people say that they wish that Christians wouldn't fight over doctrine. But that's exactly what Paul is commanding Timothy to do. Now there is a difference between contending for the faith and beating people up with the truth. (laughs) And though he says fight, he's already said pursue gentleness. (laughs) So there's certainly a manner in which we we fight and wrestle for the truth. But fight the good fight of the faith and last command take hold, he says, of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Remember, uh, you may wonder why does Paul tell Timothy to take hold of something that he already has, right? He already has eternal life. Every believer receives eternal life, the life of the age to come. Uh, They receive it the moment they believe in Jesus. And Timothy has already confessed his belief in Jesus before many witnesses, right? It's life that starts at a point in time and continues now and on into eternity. So he already has the beginnings of eternal life. He's a believing man. Why tell him to take hold of what he already possesses? And I think, as one commentator put it, it's possible to possess something without embracing and enjoying it making use of it you can hold on to a thing but not very tightly and you can believe something not very firmly and he's using a strong word here grab it hold on to it lay your hands on it and don't let it go If you're walking along the street and you're holding the hand of your little daughter and it's busy and traffic is flying by, you hold that hand firmly for her well-being. She is too precious to hold casually. And so it is with eternal life. Hold on to it, he says. And what is this eternal life? Jesus defined it in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. To know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Hold on to Jesus. He called you, Paul says. And you've confessed him. Hold on. So flee, pursue, fight, take hold. In other words, a good reminder here, Christianity is not a spectator religion. It does come to us as good news. And we are to stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. We are to be spectators at the foot of the cross at what Jesus has done once and for all for us. You're just to be a spectator to that. But then we participate in it as the Spirit applies Christ to us and we grow in Christ's likeness and we're not to be passive in that. We are by the help of the Spirit. We're to flee and pursue and fight and take hold. And so we're to do something active. Press on. That's the first thing, verses 11 and 12. The command to press on. Then verses 13 and 14, there's a charge to persevere. Not just move forward or move in a new direction. Not just hold on, but persevere. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God 
Verse 14, to keep the commandment, to keep on keeping it, unstained and free from reproach. Probably what he means by that commandment, probably, is what he's just been commanding. Uh, And do it until Jesus returns. Now, uh, why should he persevere in this? A couple of reasons he lists. One reason is because he lives life, we all do, in the presence of God. Notice again, uh, verse 13, the second half of it, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. And in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he references God the Father and God the Son, and we live in their presence. They're unblinking, always seeing, never sleeping witnesses to the unfolding story that's Timothy's life and our life. And he says, you're in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Hold on. Persevere. Uh, A man named Oz Guinness, Guinness, who's a, a writer, tells a story of General Charles Gordon, 19th century officer of British Army. He was a committed Christian and uh, during one of his many military campaigns found himself a prisoner of war in Abyssinia or modern day Ethiopia or a portion of it. And after his capture, he was taken before the king of that country, a man known for his cruelty, and he was questioned. And at one point, the king got into the general's face and asked, do you know, general, that I could kill you on the spot if I liked? I am perfectly aware of it, your majesty, Gordon replied. Do so at once, if it is your royal pleasure, I am ready. What? was the reply. You're ready to be killed? the king said, astonished. Certainly, said Gordon, I am always ready to die. Then my, my, my terrors have no power over you, said the king, or my power has no terror for you. Uh, None whatsoever, Gordon answered. And with that, the king left him speechless and amazed. Now, what's that about? Simply this. General Gordon knew that in spite of this this man's pretensions to power, he knew that the one who truly had power over his life and over his death was not the king of Abyssinia, but the king of kings, the king of heaven and earth, in whose hands he was held. And firmly grasped. And this is what Paul is saying. Uh, You are in the hand of the one who is the giver of life. Who can alone create it. And sustain it. Both physical life and spiritual life. Hold on. Fear him. Honor him. Persevere. Because though others may take your life. He can give you back your life. (laughs) And not only this. But he's to persevere. Secondly. Because of the example of Jesus. Who he reminds you in his testimony before Pontius Pilate he gave the good confession he's reminding you of that story of the life of Jesus when after he was arrested and placed on trial he was brought before the governor and he was questioned and there were two things in particular that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate do you remember them when Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews if he was the long-awaited messiah of Israel When Pilate asked that question, Jesus responded by saying, you have said that it is, right? In other words, yes. But then also in John 19, um, there's this exchange. The Jews were insisting to Pilate 
We have a law, verse 7, John 19, 7. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He who faced the greater difficulty and danger and made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. He confessed that he was the long-expected king. He told even Pilate that he had no power over him but the power that God had given. And only by God's permission could Pilate take his life. And so he's holding him up as an example for Timothy. You do likewise. Confess and press on and, and hold on and persevere no matter what it costs you. It's a reminder to us that your Savior never leaves you where he has not been. That he never requires of you more than he himself has suffered. That he sympathizes with you in your temptations to compromise your faith. Or to let go of God's hand. Or to trade the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of God. To give it all away. To get this world. This was what Jesus was offered. And he said no. He held on to God. So you likewise, you say, persevere. And he can help you. Because he's a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly what you need from the inside out. So he says persevere. And do so how long? Until Jesus returns and when will that be Paul says that will be what God brings about it about in his own time <laughs> it doesn't tell you when that will be and he could have just stopped there and said he's going to bring it about in his own time <laughs> so just hold on but he doesn't really stop there he goes on to remind Timothy of who this God is who holds that day and time and hour in his hands. And that's where we close, because he, he turns to this king in a doxology of praise, and it's meant to actually help us hold on. What kind of God are we serving? Well, notice what he says. Though, though they're called to endure for a long time, an indefinite period of time, a time we, know, we don't know how long that time will be. And there will be lots of temptations to doubt, to wander away. Uh, to question the wisdom of God, right? Why has God not brought Jesus back yet? And Paul is saying, you have got to have a vision of the glory and greatness of God on his throne to sustain you in your perseverance. Maybe you're saying, you know, all I can barely do is put one foot in front of the other in my weakness then Paul is saying to us, draw your strength from him who is sovereign and rules over all and who can do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or imagine according to his power at work within you. What kind of God is he? He is the, the most blessed and sovereign one, the ruler who he says is four things, invincible. He's 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign ruler. No human ruler can prevail against him. And to serve on his side, Paul is saying, is to side with the victor over all evil. Remember him. He's invincible. And he is secondly immortal. He doesn't decline. He doesn't decay. He doesn't die. And to serve him is to side with the one who who bestows immortality upon his people. He possesses it, Paul says, in himself. But he gives it to his people. And thirdly, he says God is inaccessible. He dwells in unapproachable light. (laughs) Even angels cover their eyes in his presence. He is beyond the reach of sinful people. In the light of his goodness and glory, no one can see him. And to serve him, Paul is saying, is to side with the true and the good and the beautiful over all that is false and evil and ugly before our faces every day. And not only is he uh, invincible and immortal and inaccessible, but he is invisible. No one has seen him or can see him. To serve him is to side with the one, though, who does make himself visible in and through his word and in his incarnate son. He is this great, transcendent, Sovereign, ruler, invincible, immortal, inaccessible, and invisible, who sits on his throne and runs the universe and is sending back Jesus. You remember him. And this is so helpful to us as we close. Because sometimes when you are most doubtful about God, it's then that you need to remember most how little you really know of him and how poorly you understand him. It's when you are convinced that he doesn't know what he is doing that you most need to remember, relatively speaking, you have no earthly idea who he is in his essential being and nature. Yet there are some things you could know, great and wonderful things here and now, yet as through a glass darkly, one day face to face, in the face of Jesus. But we know so little, and that's a great comfort to us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And at the moment you're saying to yourself, this would be a great time for Jesus to come back because it would rescue me from this mess. Even in the midst of that, whatever it is, and we all have those moments, you remember that God controls the clock. He sets the timer. He sees further than we do, and he is unspeakably glorious and cannot be fathomed by us. And if this God is for you, who can stand against you? Not trouble, not tribulation, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword, not death. Not demons, not deprivation, not anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, lift high Christ before us and give us eyes to see and knees to bow and hearts to trust in Him.
and find our help and hope in him. And aid, we pray, most especially those who have no idea how they can make it another day without you. And grant us the humility to know that that is us without you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.